All right, Judges chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Judges chapter 3. And as I said, we've got a doozy this morning for our text. It might take us a few minutes before we get to the good stuff. But I promise you, you'll remember this story. Uh, and for all of you that think the Bible is boring, this one is for you. Uh, we're, we're in Judges 3, and if you weren't here last week, it kind of sets the stage for everything, kind of sets the stage for uh, everything that's going to follow over the next few weeks. And Israel had gone from arriving at the mountaintop and, and basking in the blessing of God as they conquered and kind of moved into the promised land. So you know uh, there's Exodus, they, they leave captivity, they wander in the desert, then Joshua leads them to take over the promised land, and, and, uh, and they, they've gotten there, and now that they kind of know prosperity, now that they kind of know uh, what it means to be kind of in charge and kind of running the, running the show to kind of be on this mountaintop where God had brought them, they kind of forgot how they got there in the first place. And that's kind of the story of the book of Judges. And this is something that Moses had warned them to be wary of. He had warned them to say that this day might come. You have to make sure that you don't. It would be easy to forget God in that moment whenever all seems right. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, you can turn there if you want, and then we'll be back in Judges 3. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses wrote this. He says, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. So he's talking about how, you, how, how you're going to make it to the promised land. You're going to make it to this place. He's bringing you into a good land, a land of uh, brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out, of those, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. It's a beautiful promise. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be this land. It's going to give you this bounty. It's going to bring you to this place you've never known as a people. It's a great promise. It sounds so good. You'll eat and be full. You'll be satisfied. Your bank account will be fat. Your house will be big and your worries will all be behind you. We'd all sign up for that one. That sounds like a pretty good place for us to be. But Moses knows that with that level of security, that level of comfort, that level of prosperity, you're in a very, very dangerous place too. Because when you have all of that, what do you need God for at all? You, when you have everything you need, when you have everything you could want, what do you even need God for? And Moses knows that that's what could happen. So if you keep reading in verse 11, it says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest in your heart, you say, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. 
You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers and as it is, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. That barely needs any kind of like instruction to go along with it. It's so clear what he is saying here, the warning that comes. The glory that comes with the mountaintop, with the mountaintop, with that comes the danger of falling off the cliff. Moses warns, don't forget who got you here. Because he can take it even easier than he gave it. I don't know what, what life has dealt you this morning. I don't know if you're in a good place. I don't know if you're in a hard place. I don't know if you're in a place of, uh, of relative prosperity. I don't know if you're in a place of suffering. I don't know if your bank account is fat or if you're trying to figure out how you're going to pay the bill with the next check that you've got. I don't know where you're at, if you're in the valley or on the mountaintop, but I'm guessing most of us are somewhere in between. In that place in the climb where the, the, the trees are so, uh, so far around us, we can't even see where we are in the climb. We don't know how far up the mountain we are. We're just trying to take the next step to get up the trail a little bit further and to get just a little bit more. I'm guessing that's where most of you are. And what we have to remember is we have to do this exactly as Moses says. We have to remember that no matter how good it gets, no matter how when we get to those places where things are going well, we have to remember that A, we didn't get ourselves there, and B, we need God's help to sustain it. It's just so easy to feel like you've done it and you're good to go when all is going well. And like I said last week, it isn't turning your back on God so much as, as it is you just deciding you don't really need Him anymore. And make no mistake about it, Satan can use success for his purposes just as much as he can use failure. They both have their hidden hooks in them. And this is where we find ourselves in Judges chapter 3. Exactly where God said they would be if they weren't careful. And you have to understand, they were not careful. They did exactly what Moses said would probably happen to them. Things went well, and they forgot about God. Things went well, and their adherence to the covenant went by the wayside, and they said, we'll do what we want to do, we'll marry who we want to marry, and we'll worship who we want to worship. What do we need Yahweh for anyway? He got us here, but we're good now. We've got everything. That's where we are now. This brings us to where we left off last week, the riddle of the Old Testament. How does God uphold his threat to the nation of Israel? You see how that ended there Deuteronomy chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 there. It said, if you forget God, you as a nation will perish. You as a nation will go away. Just like all these other nations that you have wiped out, you will be gone too. So how does God uh, follow up on that threat? We all know, for the, those of us that are parents, we know that, that one of the worst things you can do is make empty threats. Because as soon as you make an empty threat, you know what comes behind it is disobedience because empty threats really aren't a threat at all. And so how does God keep from making empty threats and instead follows through on his threat to 
uh, that the nation of Israel would perish, but also maintain faithfulness to the covenant that he said, no matter what he would be faithful to, that he would never forget nor forsake Israel. How does he do those two things? How can God hold to a conditional threat made when he is bound to an unconditional covenant? That's the riddle of the Old Testament. And Judges is the beginning of the answer of that question. And God begins to show how he's going to do that in just a few ways. So we're going to look at two different judges this morning. And just a reminder as we get into this, and you'll see this play out a little bit later, less than you do the first kind of three or four judges that we look at here. But the judges are not given to us in order to be examples to emulate. That is not their role. The judges are given to us in order for us to understand how God works and how God solves that riddle of the Old Testament. Okay, So, so don't read this, and we're going to read about uh, uh, Othniel, and we're going to read about Ehud. We're going to read about these two guys, but don't read this and think, well, how can I be like those guys? Those guys are the heroes. Those are the, those are the champions. How can I be like those guys? Don't read it that way. Read it and think, why did God do it this way? What is God trying to accomplish through these people? That will help you as we go throughout this book. So let's read our first one. Judge number one, Othniel. Judges 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Get used to that sentence because we're going to hear it a lot over the course of the next couple of months. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim. I practiced that, still got it wrong. King of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim. I can't do it. Can't get it out. Um, for eight years. So they served this other king for eight years. All right? So, so what happens? They, they, they get there, they get fat and happy, and they realize they start marrying into, like, marrying off their, their daughters and their sons to other, uh, to other nations, to other faiths. They start worshiping other gods, these Baals and these Asherahs, and, and God says, All right, I told you what would happen if you did this, so now you will be punished. And what happens is, the people who were once set free from, uh, from Egypt are now back in slavery again. And what we see is the beginning of a pattern that's going to get repeated over and over and over in this book. In fact, I'll just go ahead and tell you right now, the sermon I give today, I could probably give every week for the next eight weeks as we go through this. If you study the book of Judges at all, they will use one of two words to summarize the entire book. Either one is going to be cycles, or two is going to be spiral, a downward spiral. One of those two words is how they will determine the book, or they, they will teach about the book, because what you're going to see is the same thing happens over and over and over again. Now, what you're going to see is as it happens, things get worse and worse and worse, but it's the same pattern. Israel continues to rehash the same mistakes, followed by God's punishment, followed by God's response to their suffering, followed by God's deliverance through a judge. That's the cycle. That's, that's every sermon for the next eight weeks. That's what's going to happen. Now, there's different circumstances that we can learn from each one, but that's what's going to happen every single time. 
So we see that Israel has sinned greatly, done exactly what they were warned they should not do, and God does exactly what he said he would do. He sends a pagan king to rule over them. Now, I want to be careful here as we look at this and as we talk about this and as we go through this. I want to be careful. I don't want to preach some sort of health and wealth gospel. That is a lie from the pit of hell that has destroyed many, many souls. But we also cannot deny the general principle that we see all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, that honoring, obeying, and following God tends to go well with God's people in their lives. Now, this is not a universally true thing. It doesn't alleviate or eliminate suffering. It doesn't mean that you're going to be rich and fat and happy. It's not what I'm saying at all. But it is also a truism that following God's commands and living for His glory will tend to put us on a better path and in the company of a better life. But for now, Israel is punished for their disobedience. God is under no obligation based on Israel's actions to relent in this punishment. But if we keep reading, we'll see that he sends someone to help, the first of the judges. Remember, when I say judge, you can substitute the word savior or deliverer in there because that is how they function uh, primarily in this text, in these these stories. Judges chapter 3, verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord... Now, remember, what what could be the answer to this? But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord said, deal with it, you're living in your own sin. They could do like I do to my kids often, too bad, there's consequences for your actions. Figure it out, right? They could do that kind of, God could totally have said that and done that. Instead, he shows them grace and mercy. It says, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. You guys remember Caleb and Joshua? The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishatham, we're going to say that's how you say that, king of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan, so that the land, that the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So, That's it. That's the entire story of this one guy, Othniel. That's the entirety of the story of this judge. Now, this guy, Othniel, is a guy you'd expect to kind of take on this leadership mantle. He's the guy that that you would look at and say, that guy comes from a, a good family. He comes from a good family, and I would expect to see him. He's kind of the guy you you would expect to see in office, right? He kind of comes from this family that's well-known within the people of Israel. And for him to kind of step up and lead the people of Israel into battle to, to, to free them from this slavery that they've been in makes total sense, and he's good at it. He leads well. He wins the victories. He does everything uh, that, he, that, he, that, he, that he should. He, he is an example of a good judge. And we're going to see that those, those guys are, ex- are kind of exceptionally rare, It's really just our first few here that are going to fit that mold. But he is a good judge. Now Israel could take this as a a, a second chance, a wake-up call. Like, oh man, we were back in slavery again. We had heard how terrible that that was from our ancestors, but we had never experienced that. Now that we have, we want to avoid that. We have to double down and we have to worship God and God alone. 
but we know already it's a cycle. And they don't come anywhere close to heeding the warning for their second chance. And they dive right back into the sin that they had just forgotten. Look in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he, this would be Eglon, gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So they dive right back into their sin, and they are forced to serve a new king. And it goes from eight years to now 18 years as slaves. Again, in their own land that was promised to them, they are now slaves to another king. This is so far from what God had intended for them. It's so far from the blessing that was supposed to be theirs to take hold of. It's so messed up to see the juxtaposition of these two things. A nation brought out of slavery in the land of promise but now enslaved to another king. You you can't get more of an ironic picture to, 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 to put forward for just how far Israel was from everything that they were supposed to be. He had brought them out of slavery to the promised land in order to prosper, to flourish, and to bless other nations. Now they are in the promised land, but instead of being a blessing to other nations, they are enslaved by them. You would be hard-pressed to find a better picture of sin this morning than that. And what sin does to you. The sin that promises life, it promises security, it promises blessing and happiness, is in fact the very thing that robs us of blessing and happiness. In the very place where we should be taking hold of it. Blessed, but unable to take hold of the blessing. That is the description that could fit over many of our lives this morning. A life full of blessing all around us. But because of some sin in our lives, we can't enjoy the blessings that we have been given. Instead, we are robbed of what God intended to be our greatest source of joy. It seems, for, it seems forever out of reach even though it's, it's close enough to touch. This is the picture of what sin does to us. God gives us the blessing, and we can't take hold of it for the simple fact that instead the sin has enslaved us. And so what should be there to give us life and life to the full instead is there to say, this could be yours, but you have chosen otherwise. This is where the people of Israel are. And it's a feeling that we know all too well. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised for them a deliverer. Again, same pattern. The people cried out. They said, we're sorry. We messed up. God, hear our prayer. Come and rescue us. We need a rescuer. And God responds and says, here is your rescuer. Ehud, the son of Gera, shows up on the scene. The Benjamite, the left-handed man. A left-handed man is what it says. Uh, The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So it's the same pattern again. Israel forgets God, does what is evil in the sight of the Lord, gets punished, 
which is merited, and then cries out to God. God hears their cry and raises up a deliverer to save them, which is totally unmerited. Merited uh, punishment, unmerited grace. The story repeated over and over again. We see this most clearly in the cross. This is where this should take us immediately to. Merited punishment, our punishment on Jesus for unmerited grace given to us. It is the story of Scripture. And it's the pattern just over and over and over again. Then we meet our next judge, Ehud. Now, Ehud is going to be one of the most interesting stories you'll see in all of Scripture. And you're going to want to pay attention to the rest of this story. So if you've been checked out, now it's when you check in, right? Come back into this part. It gives us this little nugget about Ehud. It says that he is left-handed. Just show of hands, show of left hands. How many left-handers do we have in here? All right, so that's about, it's supposed to be about 10%. That's probably about, about close. Uh, left-handers that we have in here. What's inter- interesting is that when this was written, they didn't even have a phrase to say left-handed. Um, basically, the, the, the way that this is written in Hebrew, it says that, that Ehud was right-side bound. So basically what they're saying is that his right side didn't work. That, that's kind of how, it, how it's put out there. And the reason they didn't, uh, that, that they say it this way is because to be left-handed would have been uh, considered to be uh, a, a defect. Like there was something wrong with Ehud whenever he was born. It would have, it would have been considered that, that something was wrong with him. Not that you were just different, but that you were handicapped and that you, you had this, this problem with you that, that, that ostracized you and made you different than the rest of the population. It's not just that, that, that you were different, but it was that you somehow didn't work. I mean, this has been true up until really just recent decades that people would have thought this about those that were left-handed. They would have been, so for, 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 for centuries, left-handed people, whenever they were born, would have been forced to learn how to write right-handed so that they could be like everyone else and that they could be normal. It's really not until just uh, recent, recent decades that left-handed people were allowed to just be left-handed. And this would have been true in this culture uh, to to the point that the fact that he was left-handed would have ostracized him. It would have made him an outcast. It would have made him somebody that would have been forgotten by society because his right side didn't work. So in other words, unlike our first judge who came from a good family with a good reputation that you would fully expect God would raise up somebody like this, Ehud would have been dismissed and seen as damaged goods, which I think is the whole point of this story of this guy. God isn't just raising up the ones that you would expect, but he's also raising up the ones that you would never go, that you you would never go find, you would never recruit, you would never want on your team. He's using the best of the best, and he's using the forgotten and the dismissed. This is how God works. And while these judges are, uh, are not stories for us to emulate them, they are something to teach us about the way God works. And here he's chosen a deliverer, a savior for the people of Israel that would have been forgotten and dismissed by his own culture. 
And it's the reason that the story is able to keep progressing the way it does. And I'll warn you here, as we read the rest of this story, uh, if you've not read the story, if you don't know what's coming, it's about to get very graphic, and it's about to get very crass. I try to avoid those when I preach, but I also read the Bible when I preach. So I'm going to let the Bible just tell this story uh, as it goes, and we'll see how, we'll see how the rest of this, uh, this, this all plays out. Um, but you've been warned. So Judges chapter 3, verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So this would be so that his left hand could reach in and grab it easily. So he, he, he bound it under the right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. So a tribute is going to be when you show up and you give him something that says, we think that you're great, we think that you're awesome, we, we, we pay homage to you, King Eglon. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And, he, and the king commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. So Ehud comes his, uh, makes his tribute to honor this king that has enslaved his countrymen. And this is where things are about to go sideways for Eglon. But he doesn't, he doesn't quite realize what's happening here. Now remember, I said that the, the judges aren't really in the style of Judge Judy. That's not what I want you to think of. This guy, is Ehud, is more like an assassin. For you gamers, this is like Assassin's Creed kind of a, a scene here, right? So you get this guy that's sneaking in. He's got a knife strapped to his leg. He's got his hoodie up. He's, he's in there. He brings the, 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 the tribute in. The guards leave. Uh, he makes sure that they're alone. These are not great guards, uh, apparently. They're not uh, brilliant because whenever he says, I've got a secret message for you, the king's like, all right, sounds good to me. Guards, leave. Just the two of us. This seems like a good dude. Verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. So they're up on the roof all by themselves. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, it's an important note in there, took the sword from his right thigh and he thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. And then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So he shuts the door, locks it, and begins to walk out. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. That's a wild story. He assassinates him right there on top of the roof. Sword disappears into his fat belly. And, and, and it's so fat, the sword doesn't even come back out. Kills him that way. Poop goes everywhere. And, and everybody is kind of like, whoa, what is going on here? Meanwhile, Ehud, he puts on his hoodie, slips off the roof, out into the crowd, and kind of disappears with everyone else. This is straight out of the movies. 
Meanwhile, as Ehud slips away into the crowd, the guards are standing outside the door. They're starting to catch the, 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 the wind and the odor that is coming from this. And they're saying, oh my gosh, what did this guy eat? What is going on here? What, like, but it's the king. Like They can't call out the king. Like, like The guards are kind of like, should we knock on the door? Is he okay? Like, is there something going on? I mean, we've all been there, right? Whenever you're like, hey, is everything all right in there? That's kind of where these guards are at. But they're so embarrassed that the king is in this place. that This is the king, and they're just lowly guards. They're not going to be like, hey, man, you might want to take it easy on the dates next time. Like, that's not what they're saying at all. They're just standing out there trying to figure out, what do we do with this guy? And then after a while, and you can just imagine these guards talking to each other outside the door. Like, I'm not going in there. You go in there. No, I'm not going in there. You go in there. Eventually, they get to the point where they're like, this has been too long. This has been, there's got to be something wrong. If, if there's not something wrong, we've at least got to get him some ammonium or something because this is really, really bad, right? And so eventually they open the door, and when they open the door, he's dead, laying there on the ground. Crazy story. And now with the king dead, Ehud knows it's time for him to strike the enemy. And here's the thing. They leave King Eglon for so long, and they're debating on whether they should go in and check on the king or not, that in the meanwhile, Ehud escapes, gathers an army, attacks the army before anybody realizes that there's no king to kind of order the, uh, the, the, uh, the attack to come back, and he takes over. So let's read this in verse 26. Ehud escapes while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to uh, Sarah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and then the people of Israel went down with, with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. It's a route. Israel is restored to their place at their own, uh, as their own sovereign rulers in the land that God had promised. All because God had shown grace uh, that they did not deserve. It is a wild story. But why in the world is this story in the Bible? Why in the world do we have this story for us? Why not something nice about angels playing harps? Why not something nice in here about people singing pretty songs and getting along with each other? Why not just say that, uh, that this, this guy Ehud was a cool dude and, he, and he, uh, he was able to kind of do some great things and then led this army in victory? Yay, Ehud, we're, we're good with him. We like him. It tells us this story because it is so unexpected on so many levels. He assassinates the king. It doesn't tell us it, it, exactly uh, how, how all this happened, exactly how this plays in there, but the details are given to us uh, for a, a reason, and it references the left hand and specifically where the sword was, was placed because all of that almost certainly plays into how Ehud was able to pull this off. That little detail is, is given because it, it shows how uh, how Ehud had a strategic advantage over Eglon. Eglon literally would not have seen it coming from the left side. 
He would have expected it to come from the right side. He probably, now this is speculation, but probably was able to slip by the guards because they would not have expected a sword to be taped to this thigh because, of, of the, because that would require a left hand to reach across and, and, and make the motion for the stab. So there's a good chance that he was even able to get by the guards because they wouldn't have looked in that place because they would not have expected the left-hander to be coming in there. What was considered the defect by most becomes the strategic advantage in this moment against this king. And I don't want to dwell too much on this because I don't think it's the whole point of the story. I don't think it's the whole thing. But I do think that it's relevant. Also, it's interesting. The word Eglon, the, the, the name Eglon uh, means calf. So, so he, he literally killed the fatted calf. So you take that and run with that however you want to. But he literally killed the fatted calf and offering before the Lord. And not only does God use the forgotten and the dismissed, he takes the very things that have caused heartache, that had caused such an caused him to become such an outcast, that very thing of being left-handed becomes the thing that delivers the people of Israel. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Rain did not come up with that story. That comes out of the Bible. This is how God likes to do things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says it right th like this. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what Israel had forgotten. Their boast was in themselves. They convinced themselves that they had gotten to the promised land under their own might, their own ingenuity, their own military prowess. They had gotten there to this place. They had, they had, they had gotten to this place. And they had said, look at us. Look how great we are. We got it from here, God. We'll take it and we'll run with it. And I think this is the point of Ehud's story. Let the one that boasts, boast in the Lord. God specializes I, I would even say I think God rejoices in using the unexpected to bring about his desires. He uses the poor to shame the rich and the powerful. He uses the uneducated fishermen to spread the good news of the gospel. He uses the well-trained Jew in Paul to reach out to the Gentiles. The left-handed forgotten man to kill the fat and happy king. He uses a baby to become king. And then he uses death to bring life. This is how God works. He does not work on our schedule. He does not use our means. And he does not work for our glory. He doesn't do things the way we would, when we would, or for the reasons that we do. But so long as we are his, God is always faithful and he is always working things together for our good and for his glory. You just never really know where it's going to come from or how he's going to do it. That was true when Israel was slaves to Eglon. 
And when Ehud walked out of that palace and went to win a war, God is always working. You just don't always know how. Which is why our job is to always keep pursuing him. Our task is to always remember the God that is faithful. Our task is to always remember that our boast is in him and in him alone. Our task is not to despise the lowly and the poor and the forgotten, but instead to minister to those because that may just be where God is going to do his most work. Our task as the followers of Jesus is to mirror the life of Jesus who sought after those that were the outcast and the poor and the forgotten. Our task is not to count out a power and to seek power, but instead to give it up and to, and to give up our own demands and our own rights in order to care for the least of these. This is the task we've been given. And when we do those things, we show that we are not here for our own good and for our own power. We are not here to create our own kingdom and, our, and, and establish our own name. But instead, we are here to trust in the name of God, to trust in the grace of God, and then to make that grace known to everyone. That is our call. And we can get all that simply by seeing how God decides to work by somebody who would have been totally forgotten, who would have been totally dismissed by a nation that should have been totally forgotten and totally dismissed. But instead, God showed grace and mercy. Our boast must be the same as Paul's in Galatians chapter 6. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so what that means for us as Christians is that our boast is not in, look at me, look how good I am, look at how clean I am, look at, the, look at the things that I've done for God, look at the money I put in the offering plate, look at the ways that I serve at church, look at all these things that I've done. Instead, we boast in an instrument of death. Because it was through that death that we received grace. And it's through when we take up that cross that we begin to function and live like Christ to share in his sufferings. No one boasts in, in a cross. Like we hear that verse and we think, yeah, that makes total sense. That's exactly what Paul says. I've heard that my whole life. I understand what that means. No one boasts in a cross because a cross is meant to take your, your dignity. A cross is meant to take your life. A, a cross is meant to take, not to give. But in God's economy, it was through the cross that we were given everything. And it's when we pursue that that we can, we can avoid making the, 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 the same mistake that Israel did, the mistake of being in the place of blessing but unable to take hold of it because we are too busy pursuing all these other gods and all these other idols. In the place of blessing, enslaved. But the promise of Jesus is that in the place of death, we find freedom. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of Christianity. That's the message of the story of the judges. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we study this story that seems so crass and seems such a crazy thing to be uh, in Scripture, I pray that you would, you would open our eyes to the truth in which we, which we should know and which we should learn from this. Father, I pray that that we wouldn't get so caught up in all the details that we miss out on what it is that you would like for us to know. 
Father, I pray for those in here that are stuck in that place of sin, that are stuck in that place where the greatest blessings have been taken, where they can see them, but they can't take hold of them because of the sin in their life. Father, I pray that you would convict them this morning, that they would be faithful to confess that sin, confess it to you, to confess it to one another, repent and turn from that sin that they might return to you and take hold of the life that you intended for them. And Father, I pray for all of us that you would teach us what it means to embrace the cross, to boast only in the cross, to find our hope in the place that seems to be the most hopeless place in the world. And to embrace the death of Jesus as the moment of life for us. It's in Christ's name we pray.